Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Shirley Germain was Opera Australia's wig mistress for 38 years. Her husband John Germain was a revered singer with the company for 40 years, performing many of the great baritone roles. Shirley commenced her career as a hairdresser. In the second year of its existence, she found that the opera company was looking for someone to oversee the preparation and maintenance of the many wigs required in production. Already associated with the company through her husband, the role seemed a perfect fit. The young company made do in various venues around Sydney until 1973, when Opera Australia made the Sydney Opera House its new home. Shirley has been in the unique position of having a front row seat, watching the company grow and triumph over several decades. She's worked with the greats of the opera world and counted many of them as her close friends. It is a role she relished and we are indeed privileged to have access to her experience and anecdote in this delightful episode of Stages. Good, how are you feeling? I'm feeling fine, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mean am I nervous? Yes. I might be, but I'm not. No, 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 no. This is very, well, we're very relaxed. Very relaxed. Very at home. Oh, well, that's good. I'm yes. glad to hear it. In your lovely kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> now, Shirley, you, uh, I'm delighted to talk to you because you represent a an element of the theatre that um, uh, we all know about, but or we know exists, but probably don't know a lot about, and that is the wig mistress. You were the wig mistress at Opera Australia for. 38 years? Just on 38 years, yes. That's an extraordinary milestone. It was. I never expected it when I went into it. I thought it would be for one season. That would be it. Did it feel like 38 years? No, no. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was interesting the way I got into it. John had got in the year before. Now we're talking about John Germain, your husband. Yes, yes. And uh, at the end of that season... uh, the woman that did the wigs was going overseas with her husband and Stephen Hark said, anyone could recommend? And John said, oh, well, my wife's a hairdresser, you know. And uh, and so that's how I got in. Just left my job as De Lorenzo's, and, uh, which I'd had a lot of experience in, and uh, in meeting people and clients, Italian opera singers and models and... Googie Withers and people like that were my clients. This was the hair salon you were yes, working in? Yes, at De Lorenzo's. So going into the theatre was like an extension of all that. And uh, I did the first season and then we had time off, but then I was employed during that time to go to Mona Workman and did a lot of work with her, mm. did a lot of work with the ABC. We did all the uh, Mavis Bramston shows. They'd send the wigs at 9 o'clock in the morning or the order and I'd have to have them dressed and ready to go on by four o'clock. And uh, I learned a lot from Mona. She was a great wig maker. You've had an incredible um, front row seat also at the the history of the opera company and and the way that that developed and grew. Yes, yes. We did indeed. Uh, We saw a lot of general managers. We saw a lot of no money. We saw people that weren't fully employed. I wasn't fully employed... Uh, but I went to Mona Workman and worked for the opera to get ready for the next season. But John was one of the few that went on to a retainer. Elsie Morrison said at the end of her season, you've got a a nuclear of singers here that you must keep together. And so that's what uh, they did. He was on a retainer. And uh, 
that's how he come to do country tours. Did a lot of club work with uh, Ros Keane, and uh, and then when the season started again, we were back back working together. Now, who was Mona Workman? Mona Workman was an English woman that came out uh, and set up a wig making, uh, and she had rooms in the Elizabethan rooms that were in Dowling Street in the very early days, and she did the the wigs to start with that first season for the for the Mozart season and then when they had to get someone else they I, I went in with Mona. So you sort of served an apprenticeship with I Mona. did actually serve an apprenticeship but she showed me how to put wigs on, how to take them off, how to clean them, how to wash them but I did all the dressing and that's what I was good at, the mm. dressing, mm. which I loved. Mm. And uh, But she did teach me a lot. Yeah. And uh, It's a lot of exposure to beautiful music scores over that 38 years. I'm, I'm curious, because that was so much a part of your working life. In retirement, do you still listen to classical music? Oh, yes, it's never off. Yeah, it was. But I heard every dress rehearsal, every performance for 38 years almost. Yeah. I mean, I could hear famous singers, not just once that you go and pay for, but every night, and got to know them. That was the wonderful thing about it. I got to know them all. You can't go into a dressing room to nervous singers, because they're all a bit nervous, to put a wig on without them talking to you and you've got to be able to make them feel relaxed. Well, that's the tremendous gift of of a hairdresser, isn't it? Or somebody doing wigs in your position. You you go and get your hair cut or your hair done or whatever. You either hate it or like it. (laughs) But I'm amazed at the, the stylist, the person looking after you, they chat so easily about anything. Well, I think we're sort of mini psychiatrists myself. Right. I'm not sure, but I think so. We usually heard, you usually hear the their problems or their their nervous state or whatever it is. So you're exposed to a lot of uh, yes delicate I, information too. I well, suppose, yes, aren't you? and the grave is not more silent, I must say. Uh, but um, you know, once you put a wig on, that character becomes alive. John always said that he's put the makeup on, but once the wig goes on, the character's there, and then the costume finishes it off, of course. But uh, it's 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 quite an interesting journey to put, you know, to see a character submerge and, and complete the transformation yeah, for, the, exactly. for the actor or yeah, the singer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you like to listen to any other genres of music? I love going to the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, and. Uh, and hear stuff that I've never been able to hear before because I was sort of the brain got so much opera to go and just hear beautiful music sends you onto another planet. I like the light stuff. I love all the you know that I don't like the loud stuff, but I like the soft, nice, romantic, modern the, stuff. The, the chill, the relax, relax. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, we'll gather lilacs and I'll be loving you always and all that stuff. John used to sing all that as encores, you know, if he's doing the clubs. And it'd go down very... People love it. They all know it. Yeah. I love that sort of stuff, yes. So in a career that has required so much creativity with with your work with wigs, what do you do in retirement to to keep that creativity? Are you a gardener? Yeah, I do the garden. I I have a man who does the lawn and, and, and I cook. I make jam and marmalade and I knit. I knit a lot. I knit socks for, well, Jeff Chard, Greg Dempsey. I knit a lot. And I knit also, I belong to a knitting club, and we knit for the refugees and for the, uh, the hospitals, rugs for the hospitals. And uh, 
little premature babies and uh, and have a very nice social time. But of course, with the with the COVID, we, well, we haven't done that. But uh, I've just kept knitting beanies and that. We yeah. keep very busy. You keep very active, very creative. Yes, and I love going to the movies, but I haven't been able to do that, of course, since. Oh, it's put the kibosh on a lot oh, of activity, yes, hasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Haven't been to the movies for so long that, uh, and I'm a bit scared to go. Understandably. Because you don't like to come home. I have a daughter and a son-in-law and a grandson that would be very, um, you know, they've got to be careful where they go. And uh, I'd hate to, you know, get something that went on to them. You've got mm. to be very careful. Mm. Yes. Well, we're doing well in the country, in this country oh, at yes, the moment, yes, I think. But yes. we can't become too complacent, no, can we? No, no. Well, my daughter's a doctor and she's, they both are. And uh, she's maintains that it'll be the new into the next year before we're all uh, immune, immune or, or the vaccine, have, uh, the vaccine and have the freedom to yes, roam about that's right I grew up uh, the first years at, a, at St Peter's. My mum and dad, both from Scotland, had a, a little corner shop. I was born at the end of the Depression, of course, towards the end. I was a Depression baby. And uh, I grew up there, and I must say those first years, my mum always said, although they didn't have much money and it was the Depression, it was the happiest years of their lives. They, and people were very good to me uh, as a little girl. Uh, then it's, when I turned seven, just on to eight, I moved here to Dulwich Hill and I've been here ever since. And uh, I grew up at uh, just not far from where I live now and went to Sunday school, school here, uh, fellowship, met my husband there, because he lived in this street anyway. Because you met him at age ten or something? Didn't you? I was, he was ten and I was eight. We sat in the birthday chair together. Right. Because our birthdays were the same day. Oh, right. So, uh, yes. And I always knew him. He was a piper in a pipe band and then we grew up and went out together. And He was a school teacher. Did his, he, was the first, um, he was the first lot into Balmain Teachers College after the war. The first lot that went in... The first year were returned soldiers and he was the next lot. And he did his teaching there and then he got a scholarship to do his arts degree at night and he did that for four years. 
So did he have Scottish heritage as well? Oh, in his mother's side, yeah, yeah. Not as much as me. Both my parents were born in Scotland. But he was a good good dancer too. He he did all that. And uh, and so we sort of just... When did you start going steady? Or realise that... Oh, when we were about 18 or 19, I think. I think we got engaged about 19. In those days, if you weren't married by 22, you thought you were going to be on the shelf. So, (laughs) you know, it was stupid when I think of it. But uh, that's what happened. And we got married. He got his degree. And the minute he got his degree, they sent him off to the country. And uh, he was in in Peak Hill for a year. And at the end of that year, he came back and we were married. Uh, did you teach secondary or primary? Primary right. and music. Mm. And uh, we went to Peak Hill. We were only there six weeks and he had a very bad accident from a horse. And he was then in plaster for two years and I came back to Sydney with him eventually. I went back to De Lorenzo's to work. They rang me up and said, I believe you're back in Sydney, Shirley. Would you come back to work? And I thought, sure. John didn't work. He was quite a few long while at hospital. Right. Mm. What about um, your household growing up? Was it very artistic? Did, did Mum or Dad N- sing? Or? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, typical Scottish people. And uh, they, they were social in their own way, but not to the arts at all. But then when John came into their lives and they heard you know, singing and opera, they embraced it. They loved it. And my dad was a great favourite with... Mum and Dad were a great favourite. I'm sure anybody that ever knew me would always say, oh, Shirley's mum was great, wasn't she? Everyone loved my mum. She lived to 101. 101? Yeah. That's not a bad innings. No. And you've just turned... Can we say how old you've just turned? Oh, yes, I'm 88. 88? Yes. And uh, if, if you don't mind me saying, very fit. Yes, yes, I'm quite fit. Yes, I do all my own bits and pieces. I could probably do more. What do you put that down to? Is it, the is Scottish it? blood. Scottish blood, right. And a whiskey every night. Really? Yes. <laughs> it's important. A tonic. I think so. Medicine. My mother had that every night. Yes, I enjoy my whiskey. John, and I often hear him say to me, although I'm not, he's not here, are you ready for the other half, Shirley? And I'll say, so I'll have the other half. Yes. So John took about two years to recover from his horse yes, he, riding yes, accident. Yes, he was. He was in plaster. For, and then he, his singing teacher, Ray Beatty, which he, I took him to all the time, he had worked with before he went to the country, uh, said, Joe Post's auditioning new singers, John, why don't you go down and sing? And he said, well, I'm still on crutches. He said, oh, well. So I took him down to the Elizabethan Theatre at Newtown. That was in 1957. 56, beg your pardon. And uh, he sang Alpha Totem for them. As he was walking off, they said to him, Do you need. He didn't actually. He walked on with his crutches, but he left them by the piano or something, I think. And they said to him, uh, do you need the crutches? He's oh no no not at all. I'm just it was just I was a bit uh, thought I needed the support sort of thing and got off the stage and I was we were walking back to the car and Stephen Hag ran after him and said uh, Do you think you'd be able to throw those crutches away and and be in the company for 
six months and he said yes. I thought, God, I couldn't believe it. I thought, how's he going to throw those crutches away? But he did. He went on the first trip to Brisbane. Well, I guess if you've got that, that carrot dangling in front of oh, you, Oh, it was the incentive. It was the incentive that got... And he... Well, Sped up his recovery. And as he said, well, look, what do you think, Shirley? And I said, well, if you don't do it, you'll, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. So even if it's only one year, one season... Had he been singing uh, for a long time? Oh, yes. All through his teenage years? Oh, yes, years. he'd won a lot. He got into the finals of the aria while he was actually still in plaster. And... Uh, they rang from the hospital to say they wanted to do this new operation on his leg and uh, so he had to withdraw. But he won a bit, lots of big baritone championships and, yeah, and he was a lovely boy soprano as well. Now Stephen Hogg was the artistic director? He was director, the artistic director, right. yeah. So, uh, so he joined the 50, in 57 and, and 40 re- years later he retired. And doesn't he remain the longest serving singer with Opera Australia? Well he was. Now I think Don Shanks got to to it as well, right, okay. yeah. But he was from the very early stages, of course, from fifty-seven, right through until he retired in. I think it was, well, it was just on forty years. Yeah. So the six-month contract obviously was extended. There, there came a time where I guess he he decided that he had to give up teaching, or had he given well, that up? He, well, when this contract came up, he went to the Department of Education and said that he'd been offered this. And they knew he was a singer and they knew what he, he was... He would, well, then he had his own aside for, for music as well. Uh, and the inspector of, uh, that he spoke to said, well, look, if I were you, John, I would retire... I would just take it and uh, if ever you want to come back, you'll be able to get a job. But he said, I don't think you'll ever be back to teaching. And so he never was was interesting. But once a teacher, always a teacher. You, you reckon? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> There's no question about that. Always. So he was baritone. What were some of the roles that he a did? A very high baritone he was. Right. In fact, every all, most of the conductors and the, everyone, that they all wanted to make him into a tenor. And he could have been a tenor. He sang a tenor role in Mahagoni. Uh, the Kurt Vile. Yes. Uh, he was the tenor and Ron McConaughey was the baritone. Uh, and he, without any trouble, he was a very high baritone, Largo Factotum, Barbara Seville, anything that... But then again, he, he sang such a role, such a variety of roles that... Uh, well, Sharpless uh, and Madame the Butterfly. Yes, and... yes, yes. Rigoletto, he sang, Chef uh, uh And then again, he loved the roles like uh, the rector in Peter Grimes, not Peter Grimes, in Albert Herring. He just loved that when he was introduced to the Queen and to the Duke of Edinburgh, the Duke said to him, I loved your character. We see so many just like you. <laughs> I thought that was quite dumb. He was quite tickled about that.
favoured singing in his own language, though, I believe. Oh, yes, and his diction was excellent. Yeah. Everyone said. But he loved singing in, in a foreign language, and he, he studied it very well, and he was good at it. But he, he liked to get this, he liked to put people to understand what he was singing. Mm. A tremendous gift that the both of you gave to the company, but also I think singers generally, was that you started the Benevolent Fund for Opera Singers. Well, John did. It was originally why we started it and we felt we must do it. When Doreen Morrow, Jeff, uh, Bob Gard's wife, died, leaving two little boys and they'd lost a little girl. And then Neil Warren Smith died. Neil was like a brother to John and I. He lived here with us for years. And uh, they toured together. We, we flattered together when we were on tour even, and so with Greg Dempsey. And uh, when they both died, John said, look, we've got to have a benevolent fund like the Sydney Synth. So we decided, I think Bob Orman came on as well, and Cynthia Johnson. And uh, at the time, Ken Tribe was an interim manager. We'd lost another manager and we were looking for another one. We had a lot of those. Uh, and he came and he was looking after the company and he said to John, if you want any help, I will help you set this up. So Ken Tribe actually set it up for them. We used to have raffles in the theatre. The we had concerts after the show, we made big concerts, did that from midnight on, raised a lot of money to start it. And then Marie Therese Driscoll was great on... The Catholic Church used to run these some sort of gold things. I can't remember the name. And we'd have that every week. And you put money in and then someone won a big bit, but there was a lot left to go into the Benevolent Fund. So we raised a lot of money. And that's still going. But it was something that he was very, very... Uh, it was close to our heart. Yeah, it yeah. was... And a lot of people have benefited from it. People that uh, you wouldn't think had to, but we all fall on hard times. Yeah. And it's been a great... Uh, it's super that it's a, a great support for people. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And now, you, you hinted that the, the general managers came and went. Oh, Why was that? Was it, was it just difficult to get the, the fledgling company off the ground? Or? I'm not sure. I, I can't really, you know... Put your finger on it. No, no. We had, you know, we had Stefan Hard to start with and then there was John Young remember them well and then I can't you know they came and uh, I really think looking back the best combination was Donald MacDonald and Moffat and they lasted a long long while sometimes you know we'd we'd get a we'd have a manager and a wife that would go with it so you sort of it's very very difficult to say what the what the cause of it was yeah. I suppose money basically trying to raise enough to keep it going getting the which is, is an ongoing dilemma for any arts company. Well, it? absolutely. And I know each year, or if there was a new artistic director come, a new conductor, you know, everyone had to audition again. And I can remember John would say, oh, you've got to prove yourself every year. You know, it was always a nervous time. It wasn't so bad for me, I suppose, but um, for the staff, you know, the, I was, well, the mechs and we were all under the same union or backstage lot but uh, the singers were mind you I must say in those days 
it wasn't as bad as I feel for the poor singers today. Some of them I know are on very short contracts. It's not, nothing's permanent anymore and it won't get any better, I don't think, for well, a long while. I think that's for mm-hmm. arts workers anywhere, whether it be oh, actors or dancers. Absolutely. Um, My heart goes out to them yeah. because they have to put so much into their craft and there's just nowhere to use it anymore. Yeah. Especially the opera company, it breaks my heart. Yeah. It really does. So full-time engagement at the opera company for you, how did that come about? They were obviously looking for a, somebody to run the wig department. Oh yes, well I eventually just went into, you know, permanent because we were working almost a whole year. And once you're working for a whole year, you, you were permanent. There was never a contract. There was, I don't think I ever signed a contract. It was just a case of, you know, doing it. And I did it a long by myself for a long, long while, uh, and they were long days. In those days, start sometimes for a dress rehearsal. At, I'd be in the theatre at nine, and I'd finish the dress rehearsal and clean it all up and get ready for the night. And I'd be driving home at midnight. So, what did the job entail? What are some of the duties that you had to? Uh, well, fulfill? the job entailed to start with. Uh, in the early days, I'd have to work with. So I'd work with the producers and the designers and I'd get the design and I'd have to sort out the wigs and dress them for that design and that's when I'd go to Mona because we didn't have a wig department in the early days, wig making. So I'd go to Mona and do all the dressing there. Then once the performances start, you have to clean the wig every time it's used. How do you clean a wig? Is that shampooing it or...? Well, you have to clean the with all the net around with acetone and to start off, of course, you've got to wash the wig the same as you would an ordinary head of hair but on a block. And uh, after each performance, the wig's got to be cleaned and redressed and then it's got to be ready to put on the character for the next performance. But it meant that... um, for every performance, you'd have probably a chorus to look after and your principals. So you'd have to start pretty early. So every singer in the show would be wearing a wig? If every Generally, sing- yeah. Well, a, a, a show like Traviata or a show like War and Peace or something like that, you, all the big shows, uh, it, was, it was busy. Quick changes, different characters coming on and off, and then at the end you have to take them all off, clean them. They were wet and... Soggy All and that horrible. Perspiration, oh yes, yeah. and they'd have to go back on the block so they wouldn't shrink. So it's a big, a lot of work. It really wasn't until I got uh, a lass called Teresa in '85 that I had a very. She wasn't experienced to start with, but she'd been a hairdresser, and she was prepared to be taught. And I taught her, and she was like a sponge, and. Uh, it was great when I had her. We worked together very, very well. And she was like another daughter to me, really. Right. She, and uh, she went overseas when I retired, but she's back now working. Oh, well, she's done a tremendous amount of work filming and with the opera company, and she's up doing Elvis Presley at the moment. Very, very accomplished young, and I'm very proud of her. And she always said, oh, you taught me how to be quick, and that's one of the things you've got to be fast and yes it, it, that was a lovely relationship we still have it of course mm. beautiful yeah. yeah yes I imagine that some singers would have a wig change in the middle of the oh yes the show oh well. yes and you'd have to be there to, oh yes to sometimes quick changes off on the side of the stage 
They were the things that I always had to be there for. Not only was it a wig change, if it was a costume change, you had to be there, you had to get the wig on, you had to help get the costume on. You know, it was pretty And the, busy. the singer can't perform at their best unless they feel comfortable they, in the wig and the costume. They've got to feel... It's not comfortable. They've got to feel confident. Mm. The people that are doing it, mm. it's going to... Because they've got to do it. Some of the quick changes were just a, not even a minute. And you had to, you know... I remember doing some very big changes for Jane, especially in the uh, in the concert hall, because this is La Stupenda. Yes, Jane yeah, Dame Jane, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the concert hall, and the there were no wings, and I did. I can remember distinctly doing quick changes for her, and it was set up where the organ loft is up there, where the and we'd have to get up there, and of course she'd go up the stairs, especially for widow, and that was quick. But she was good. She was very... Uh, she, was she was easy to work with. There uh, wasn't any sort of uh, temper tantrums or diva not, antics? Not Dame Joan. She was the most perfect performer I think I've ever had the privilege of working with. Yes. So a consummate artist, of course. Of course, yes. But, but backstage, why was she good backstage? Because she knew what she was doing. She, was, she knew what her voice was going to do. She never had to worry about that. She'd just come in go in and put her hair up and pin curls and she'd be ready to put her makeup on. And, and I gather she was very down to earth as oh, well. wonderfully down to earth. Treated everybody yes. respectfully. Come in, tell me what she'd done for the day and, you know, what she might have for dinner when they got home at night and, yeah. And that developed into a long personal friendship too. It did, it? yes. A very privileged friendship. Very privileged, yes. Even when my family went over to Switzerland at the, when the Olympic Games were on, they went to Switzerland and let their house people from Switzerland. And when she knew they were going to Switzerland, she insisted they come and have a day with them at the chalet. My grandson played the Mozart piano that Richard had, and, and oh, they still remember it, actually. But, uh, yes, she was very down-to-earth. Did you speak often? Once she retired, yeah. yes, we did. And when she came out after we retired, we always had a meal together, or she'd come here or go to Mary Ann's.
Richard was always <laughs> not for not being a singer. He he be in my room at the wig at the opera house more than he'd come in have a cup of tea and then at inter every interval he was all, all we always had a cup of tea ready for him. Put it in as the curtain came down and he'd have his cup of tea and. Uh, I got to know him very well. He'd sit and talk to me. and well, I guess the wig room is a bit of a haven and, and, and the odd uh, musician or singer... They could hide there for a while. They could hide there for a while, yes. Have a gossip, have a chat. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. My dear, he'd say, that was, you know, I'll come in here. Do you mind if I come in here, my dear? I'd say, no. He'd sit down while I was doing the wigs. and I was very lucky I wasn't a singer. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have. We wouldn't have had that friendship. I don't think. Yeah, that's great. Yes, and it, and we still have it. Yes. It's you exchanged cards recently. Yes, I think, yes, we birthday. did. Yes, yeah. his ninetieth birthday. And he always answers them. You know, it's it really is quite lovely. Mm. I feel uh, very, very. Uh, when you look back on the life I had uh, with the company and not having any knowledge of opera to start with. It, it was quite amazing what the brain absorbs over the years and something will come on in the radio and all of a sudden I'll know what it is. Even before John died and it, something would come on and I'll say, that's so-and-so and so and so You'd say, oh, that's very good, Shirley. You've learnt something. Yes, very good. You know. But it's amazing what does go into the, the brain yeah. and stay there. What sort of lead-up would you have to a production? You, you'd be sent the designs and... Oh, well, I'd see the designs and work with the designer and he'd tell me what I, he wanted and then if I if there was anything to be made new which was quite often the case which would be very expensive uh, that would be sent to a wig maker which would be Mona Workman in, and then there was someone in, at the ABC that used to do it eventually but then I would just have to get the wigs that we had in stock, stock and design them and dress to Dress them to the design, especially the chorus, the chorus stuff. I would probably do most of the chorus stuff, things like Traviata or Butterfly. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Anything that's... What's, what's the average price of a wig? I know they're expensive, Oh, but well, when I was working, it was hundreds of dollars, thousands. I remember when, I think when Marie Collier brought hers out for the Troilus and Cressida... It was it was pretty expensive then. So some singers travelled with their own wig. Well, they bring sometimes they bring it from. There was a very good work, uh, wig maker in England, and quite a lot of them brought their wigs from there. If it was a role they were used to doing, they'd bring it, and they'd know that it was what would suit them. Yeah. And I guess if they're looked after, they'll last a lifetime. Oh, a lifetime, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Therese, there's still wigs hanging in the. Uh, she often used to say, God, I found such and such a wig the other day, Shirley. It must be years old, especially some of the old Benoit wigs and the wigs from the bald ones with just a bit of hair and uh, character stuff. Quite amazing, really. But hundreds and thousands of dollars worth because it's pure hair that it's yeah. used. And, of course, I haven't been in the, the game for some years. There's been a, One does lose track of all that, so... I must make an excuse yeah, yeah. if it's no, not right. No, absolutely, absolutely. Tell me about those early days of, of the opera company. 
uh, before it moved to the Opera House, of course, and, and found a home there. But you would go on... What sort of spaces were you working in? Because you would be in different venues, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. We were Oh, we were in all the old, wonderful old theatres. I mean, there's no, no theatre in the... For me, like the Princess Theatre in Melbourne. I mean, that was just so full of atmosphere and... Dirt. <laughs> old. But it was wonderful. Uh... And Her Majesty's, uh, the old Her Majesty's in Adelaide was quite something before we went into, in, they built the wonderful uh, festival hall there. And, uh, and the old Her Majesty's in Brisbane too. They were all wonderful theatres to work in and sound were wonderful as well. They had atmosphere. I think that was the thing. You felt that when you went into them that, ghosts of the people before you were still there. Yeah. That was probably what was missing in the new theatres until you get There's used no ghosts. To, yeah. yeah. But mind you, moving into the Opera House, uh, Marge the Hillmore and myself were one of the first to go into the Opera House and uh, there was a guy there who'd been there, he was in charge and I can't remember his name, he was a German. And he showed us all over the Opera House, told us how some men had just come off the, the ships as migrants and never left the opera house. They'd lived and worked there. And, and he used to show us little nooks and crannies that they actually lived in. But he showed us around and he taught us where everything was in the opera house, which was great. But it was a different workplace altogether to the old theatres. It was all so new and sterile, you yeah. know? It would it's, take it's, a while before the ghosts oh, of the Oh, yes. By the time the I was ready to leave, it had a lot of lovely ghosts and a lot of lovely memories, so mm. there was no point in... But the old theatres were quite something to, to work in. So you would go on tour with the company? Oh, yes. I always went yeah. on tour. Yeah. You went to New Zealand and... Oh, well, no. That, New Zealand was different. John and I went to New Zealand at the end of the 58, 58 season when he'd finished and I'd finished. And they wanted a barber over there, Barber of Seville. So we went over on a six months contract and it was a, to do the big country, the big towns with the orchestra and um, John Hopkins conducting, but a country tour as well. And they were all, there was Mary O'Brien, went on to big things, Peter Bailey, the tenor, and Noel Mangan, all in that cast. And we had a great time. You can promise it to all of them! And give it to none, that's one of the secrets of my success. Then I can count on you! Well... To a south of the kings we shall go with such delight and lovely work. Finding everybody laughs and sings. To a south of the kings we shall go with such delight and lovely work. tours in, in country town to country town we had a pianist and uh, we just I did the wardrobe and the wigs everything and when we got to the big towns of course we had the orchestra and in the big capital cities we had the orchestra and the conductor but we were there six months 
and it was great. I think in the end John wasn't quite sure whether he was Figaro or not, but that was all right. We, we got home just in time for Christmas. And so that filled that year in, and then the next time we were ready to start our season. And then in between the seasons, in those early days, John did country tours. I did one very big country tour with him, Traviata. And, uh, and then if he, if he wasn't uh, working, he was, on a, well, he was nearly always paid, I must say. He used to say, surely they pay me for doing something I love. And that was his attitude. That's he what you want in life, isn't it? Absolutely. A job that you love yes. and you get paid for. Yes, and he loved it. Were you recruited to work with many visiting companies? No. No. We didn't do the Sutherland season. Right. Uh, only very few went to the Sutherland season. Some of the chorus, we did a Traviata tour. John, myself, uh, Neil Warren Smith, months and months. We started in Brisbane and we finished in South Australia. I went on, I think Garib Tintner was conducting it, and he used to, I used to go on from the chorus and he'd make me sing my role every night when I went on in the chorus with a couple of other people. And I couldn't sing, and it was, but I'd get dressed up and fill the stage up. So they enlist the, the, the wiggies well, and did, all that sort of thing just did. to f- fill out the ensemble? Well, the, for that, the look, yeah. it was a very small company. We went like, you know, I can't remember all the, I know... Murray Madadi and his wife went, but Murray's voice went early in the piece and he went home and, oh, we had Maureen London. She went overseas. It was hard work. Mm. You, and especially we, we would leave of the morning about nine and we'd be on the big Pantechnico and uh, we'd get to the destination, perhaps sometimes two o'clock, sometimes three o'clock, have to set up. Then we'd be billeted. And if we were too late getting in, we wouldn't get to the billets, which was sometimes a bit of a, a relief because then you didn't have to tell them the history of your life and what you do. We'd do the performance, oh, have right. tea and tinies and go home to the billets and then be back on the bus at 9 o'clock the next morning. Yes, I guess the billets were um, evacuated. The people oh, from the opera company so would want to hear all about absolutely, it. Absolutely, That's yes. the last thing you want to do. You just want to get to bed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, it, it, you know... We, well, it was six months. It was a long tour. We were very seldom we were more than two nights. If we were a couple of nights, it was a bit of a relief. But the audiences were wonderful. Some of them came from hundreds of miles, you know, out on the properties and come in for the night. So it was worthwhile. So appreciative. Very appreciative. Yeah. Tell me about a night in 1970 where you received a phone call to alert you that there'd been a fire at a Majesty's Theatre. Oh. Were you that... concerned for your wigs? I was concerned for everything. Yeah. I got a call from Moffat about four o'clock in the morning. He said, Shirley, Her Majesty's on fire. And the fire, we better get down there. And Marge and I, Marge didn't live far from here. And we went down. Who's we were, Marge? Marge was the wardrobe mistress. Right. And Peter, when we got there and, and got into the actual site, I mean, it was, it, it was still burning. But in... On the, on the roadside, there was a couple of firemen and a table that we could recognise and a couple of chairs and our bottle of whisky sitting on the middle of it. <laughs> and Marge and I laughed and said, well, they've saved the whisky. We were way up at the top of the wardrobe. And as soon as we saw that, we oh, God, I hope someone hadn't left a cigarette or something because Marge was a smoker. Anyway, it wasn't that. It, the fire had started down in the 
in the basement. But Marge and I were the last to go that night because we had some people come and they went upstairs with us and had a drink and we all they left and then we left. And uh, it would have been midnight, you know. Apparently when the cleaners came in and opened the door downstairs, it had smouldered and it just went up. But the fireman said, we want you to come in and see just what has been saved and what hasn't been saved. So we went in and of course we were delighted because it was forts hanging there and the guys were saying, you know, it all looks like rags that have been burnt. And we said, no, that's what it's supposed to look like. <laughs> we were delighted that the, some of the costumes were all right, but the wigs and the, all the makeup uh, was floating. And of course, all the music was floating because a lot of the musicians had left their instruments uh. overnight and the music was floating. But we got in, uh, all the singers and the staff, we went into the theatre and collected all the, what we could collect. And the, the, the wigs and the beards and moustaches, we dry, dried out. But the music, we hung all the music on lines up at uh, Darling Street and uh, dried it all out. And uh, we got a lot, we saved a lot, but of course we didn't perform there again forever, I don't think. I think it was then that we went to the capital and had concerts for a while. Mm. Yeah. That's when Joan had her first... That's when I first heard Joan sing, when she'd just come back. She sang at that concert, Joan Carden. But that fire was quite something, quite something. We said to the firemen, that's our whiskey, and they said, yeah, we let them have it. But uh, <laughs> it was... Oh, we were frightened that that's where the fire had started, but it wasn't there, it was downstairs. It was quite heartbreaking, really, to see that old theatre go up and... Yeah. Sad. What were some of the other memorable nights that stand out for you uh, in 38 years at the Opera Company? Well, the first time we went to the festival and Tito Gobby and Mari Collier came to do the Toscas and then she also did Troilus and Cressida. John was in the Troilus and Cressida and he was probably in the Tosca. I can't quite remember. But she was a great Tosca, but I, I fell in love with Tito Gobby. When he came out and first, he, you know, I thought he was the most wonderful performer I'd ever seen. And then he wasn't too keen about me doing his wig. And, oh, no, I, you know, anyway, I won him over. When I eventually did it, it was so good and he was so pleased. I felt um, that was my little challenge. I thought he was rather gorgeous. Uh, great singer too, wonderful. Uh what else? Oh, look, there's so many highlights. You can't... Well, you were there at Sutherland's last performance as well, oh, weren't yes, you? Oh, yes, yes, yes. One of the most memorable performances was the Beethoven's Fidelio that I worked with and heard that music for the first time, and it's remained my favourite. I think that stands in my heart most of all, that first one that we did. I think... All of, well, Joan's performances, you couldn't help but be, you know, mesmerised by those. Uh, I loved Marilyn. Marilyn Chow wasn't, she was a Tosca that I could believe in. She was so vibrant and perhaps she didn't sing it as well as some of them. But I loved watching her. And anything Bob Gard ever sang, 
especially anything romantic, I'd go up and listen to him because he always made me cry. <laughs> and he still does. There's something on the radio the other day and they were, it was him. And I rang him up and said, oh, you've made me cry. I heard you singing such and such. And, uh, oh, I suppose. And then I think Rose and Cavalier. That was something that was, that stands out as a real top of the list with, Myra, you know, Neil Warren Smith and John and the beautiful mezzo, uh, Yvonne Minton, and the, who was the soprano? I know, uh, Gladys Fowles, Chucky Fowles, we used to call her. Neil, Neil Chucky Fowles, and uh, that was wonderful. That, new, that first night of that was just something out of the box. And uh, Downs conducting, I think. Tintner had taught... Had, had, even on the Traviata country tour, Tintner was teaching Neil Warren Smith and John their roles in Rosen Cavalier. He was determined that one day it would go on, you know. Yeah. Yeah, pe- was... People listening to this are green with envy that you were able to, to experience all of this, but not only once, but every, every night, night of the season. Every, yeah. And every dress rehearsal. Yeah. You know, be called up to the, the desk in the audience and, you know, to say they don't like this, Shirley, and you don't like that, and, you know, you'd have to try and fix what they don't like. I enjoyed working with the, with the, the, des- the designers and the, the designers more. Des Digby, uh, he was great. Sam Warnermaker, he was just such a wonderful... No, he wasn't a designer, he was the producer. And, of course, he did a great job with War and Peace. And at the end, when he was ready to go home, he left me his book his, with all his references... He wrote in the front of it to, you, to Shirley for all the hard work you've done and best wishes for you and John to us both. But he was wonderful to work with. And that was terrific. That was a big, big show. I mean, John had five roles in that performance, all little cameo roles. But, you know, then the big roles on the, the soldiers and the, the, the big scene with the, uh, in the cabin, you know, with all the generals... Wonderful, wonderful music. And to open the opera house with that was quite something, even though the possum did run across on the opening night. They had a possum on stage. No, there wasn't a possum on stage, but they were broadcasting it and recording it by television. And uh, the the possum, you know, above the orchestra pit on the proscenium of the stage, uh, a possum ran across. You can see it in some of the photos. Fantastic. But... uh, I think that was a highlight. War and Peace, Rose and Cavalier, Albert Herring. I loved Albert Herring. It was John's last performance, Albert Herring. And the early Peter Grimes we did was quite something, way back in the very early stage. We all, that, that was quite something too. Mm. It was very new to everybody and it was, I can't remember who produced it. I should have looked that up before, but... That was, they were all standout performances, in my mind, as well as, I think, in history of the company. And then, of course, Moffat came into the company very early as a young man from NIDA, and he worked a lot with John, and he was easy to work with. Another uh, producer that worked a lot at the company, or several times, I think, is related to you. And we're talking about the great Jim Sharman, who's sort of one of Australia's... Jim's my cousin. Yeah. Yeah. He's um, a few years younger than me, but he's really been like a brother to me, Jim. 
we sort of speak the same language and we were instrumental in getting him into NIDA because uh, uh, Robin Lovejoy was at NIDA at the time. We knew Robin, he'd worked as a producer with the company and uh, Jim auditioned and uh, I think he went in the year after Moffat, Jim. And uh, yes, but an extraordinary career. I mean, as oh. as well as everything oh, he's take done. Take opera away altogether. The Rocky Horror the Show. The Rocky Horror Jesus Show. Christ Hair, Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. All those things. Yeah. My mum and dad went to Jesus Christ Superstar up at the cross, and I don't know quite what they thought of it. But mum said, "Oh yes, it was great." But the thing that worried her most of all was she lost her beautiful kid gloves when she got up from the theatre. You know that was. But. Uh, <laughs> And I don't think Jim's mum and dad actually ever saw very much of what he did because oh, his dad wasn't theatrical. He was. He ran the, the tent shows, He was the, he? Tent the boxing shows, tents. Yeah. Yeah. Mind you, he was a great footballer too, captain of the big... He toured New Zealand as a captain of... I'm not sure what league it was, but they were as different as chalk and cheese. But... Uh, but that's a great thing about families, isn't it? That oh, we can all be I, so I, I loved old Jimmy Sharman. I can still hear him. He'd walk into my house and say, "How are you today, babe?" He was he was a real roughy, but he was a, a, a polished roughy. Went he was at St Joey's. He was a well-educated man, but he had that lovely roughness about him that was appealing. Mm. So, what's the connection? Your mum and his mum. His, his mum. Both. Sisters. Sisters. Yeah. Quite a few years difference. My mother was born in Scotland and his mum wasn't was born in in Tasmania. Now, talking about wigs again, can they misbehave depending on the weather or Oh no, the only thing they can do is get very hot and sweaty and and, and smelly and right. but once they're on and you know, you can no, they've got a very long life, wigs, and you can change their their style. You can do lots of things with them. Yeah. Yes, yeah. quite creative. Just to extend the character. Yes. Now your granddaughter, I believe, has gone into the business. Well, she's she did a after doing an arts degree, then she decided she wanted to do makeup and hair, and of course, she got into NIDA and did the did the course, but the hair's not as. Uh, the makeup's quite extensive, but I've, I'm worried that she. I've taught her a bit with hair when she's. but she's more towards the makeup. Now, do you still get to the opera? Yes, when, when it's on, I certainly do. Uh, I go to all the dress rehearsals, we get tickets, I hope we do next, next year. Uh, yes, we, we go to the opera, and I must say that's one of the privileges of being retired, I was able to see the operas from the front. Yeah. For the first time in all those years, I never actually saw a performance from the, the front. I'd the run out, I'd run out sometimes to see a dress rehearsal, a part of it, to see what it looked like, but never actually going to see a performance. So I've caught up with that when we could, because we haven't done that this year. When you go, are you able to just sit and enjoy and watch, or do you pick the wigs? Oh, no. Occasionally. I, occasionally. <laughs> I must hesitate. And I'll tell you another thing that worries me, the makeup. It's all beautiful, but there's not much character to it anymore. Everyone wants to sort of look beautiful. But, uh, no, I enjoy it. I go and I, I try not to... I just go and 
sit back and think how... And I've seen some pretty wonderful performances since I retired, yes. But, uh, yes, that's a privilege that I'd ever had when I worked. I think that's why I enjoy the orchestra so much, because I can go and sit back and just go to another world, yes. Wash over you. Yeah, but it's it's great. And... uh, and it's and another thing that is so wonderful about it, we meet. I meet a lot of my old colleagues, and they're there, and that's great. You see them again, and it really is. That's quite something. They're getting fewer, though. I must admit, seem to have lost so many of them in the last few years. But uh, it's sad. Mm. Well, Shirley, it's an extraordinary career, and I'm delighted that you were able to sort of give us some insight into the the role of the wig mistress and also the, the tremendous experiences you've had in observing the development of the company. That's the, the thing that pleases me most of all is to know that John and I gave a very small contribution to making the company what it was at its peak. Uh, I don't know that's ever going to get back to that with this terrible disaster we've had, the arts. But it's been a great privilege and far more than I ever, ever thought I would experience meeting all those wonderful people and some of them are still my very best friends. I, I just... And I thank John, actually, because if he hadn't taken that leap and go into it that first year, I wouldn't have experienced it. And we were able to travel that wonderful journey together. We were very privileged, very privileged. And I thank all the people that contributed to it. Mm. I had written him a letter which I had for want of better knowledge sent to where I met him down the Northland years ago. He was shearing when I knew him, so I sent the letter to him just on spec. Addressed as follows, plenty on the overflow. And an answer came directed in a writing unexpected, and I think the same was written with a thumbnail dipping tar. Twas his shearing mate who wrote it, and the baiting I will quote it. Clancy's gone to Queensland to roam in, and we don't know where he is. In my wild erratic fancy, visions come to me of Clancy. On a drove in town at Cooper, where the western drovers go. As the stalker slowly springing, Clancy rides behind them singing. For the drovers light as pleasures that the townsfolk never know. And the bush has friends to meet him, and their kindly voices greet him. In the moor of the breezes, and the river on its bars, and he 
Clancy of the Overflow, sung by John Germain, Shirley's husband. The song was a particular favourite of John's. Albert Arlen, who composed this song, and who incidentally also composed the musical The Sentimental Bloke, dedicated Clancy of the Overflow to John decades after its composition. Arlen said John sang it exactly as he'd intended. It was John Germain's final appearance on the Opera House stage at Opera Australia's 40th Anniversary Gala. It was arranged and conducted by Brian Castles Onion. My appreciation for this episode goes to Brian and Desiree Records for suggesting the conversation with Shirley Germain and also access to the terrific music choices you heard today. Like stages, Brian is determined to preserve our arts heritage and I direct you to his Great Australian Voices series, available in a beautiful CD set accompanied by a very informative pictorial booklet. The CD series celebrates a legion of great Australian singers like June Bronhill, Nance Grant, Robert Allman and Jennifer Eddy. I thoroughly recommend. And what a glorious conversation in this episode with Shirley Germain. She is truly one of the great gems and a dynamic presence in the history of opera in Australia. Join me next time when my special guest is Susie Rong. Susie is a leading theatre critic in Sydney, a prolific blogger who supports the arts with tremendous passion and articulate critique. 
and she's an actor. You may have caught her performance recently in the SBS television series Hungry Ghosts. A treat for me again, sitting down with a phenomenal practitioner and sharing the conversation with you. Thanks for tuning into this episode. You've been listening to Stages. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.